before we get to purpose and the why, we might begin to ask questions as to who we are and recognize that each of us has many different identities. So it's in a financial planning context, we can identify ourselves as an investor who wants more. They want to turn a million dollars into $2 million to make up some random numbers. But think about each of our identities. We are partners. We are parents. We are children. We are workers and co-workers. We are sports fans. We are neighbors. We are part of a family. It's not in just thinking about, well, not just what I want and not just what I want to do, but who is it that I want to be and realizing that there are multiple versions of you now and in the future. And a really, really good financial plan is going to tap into those multiple identities. I'm Ethan Devitt, and welcome to the 50 Faces podcast, a podcast committed to revealing the richness and diversity of the world of investment by focusing on its people and their stories. I'm joined today by Brian Portnoy, who's the founder of Shaping Wealth, a learning technology platform transforming the human experience of money. It combines science and story to show people how to underwrite a meaningful life and is a source of the term funded contentment. He previously led investor education across a series of investment firms and prior to that was head of manager selection at a Chicago-based fund of hedge funds. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for joining me today. Good to be here. Thank you. Well, let's start with where we always start, which is a background and career journey, quick run through. Can you tell us where you grew up, what you studied, and what was your career path before shaping wealth? So I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I live in Chicago now, but born and raised in Pittsburgh, went to college in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan. And my original passion in life was politics. So first day of freshman year in college, I declared myself a political science major and spent all of my college summers in Washington, D.C., worked in Washington after graduation. And actually, the reason I moved to Chicago was because I got a PhD in political science from the University of Chicago. It was, like many things at Chicago, multidisciplinary. So I studied business and economics and law, sociology, in addition to politics. But politics and academia is where I started. And by the time I finished my doctorate, I had actually lost interest in an academic lifestyle. I actually interviewed well at some pretty big schools to become a tenured professor. And I was struck over the, and these were many multi-day interviews. And I was struck by the fact that not in one occasion did anyone ask me what I was interested in teaching. It was all about research. And my passion is on the teaching side of things. So for that and a variety of personal reasons, I left and ended up getting a job as a junior mutual fund analyst at Morningstar, sort of random at the time. I was interested in markets, but a friend worked at Morningstar and introduced me to some people there. And at the time, it was a relatively small company. And it was an amazing experience. And that started a 20 plus going on 25 year career in financial services, in investing and portfolio management, investor education, and so at a certain point, I began writing books and behavioral finance and ultimately become an entrepreneur and started my own company a few years ago. So by way of summary, I've always described my more than 30-year career now as, as nonlinear, to some extent making it up as I go along and trusting my gut along the way. And my gut has actually been right at almost every turn. 
It's interesting. We'll get, of course, to your view on financial planning and working with individuals. And I suppose that non-linearity will be reflected time and time again in, in those lives so that we talk about. But equally, just wanted to ask you about your political PhD focus. Was there a particular angle that you took in your thesis there? Yeah, I wrote on antitrust law, which is a great topic if you're interested in an interdisciplinary perspective on the world. I wrote a dissertation whose title was Constructing Competition, the Political Foundations of Alliance Capitalism, and got a fellowship from the MacArthur Foundation to fly around the US and Europe meeting antitrust regulators and figure out how business was being regulated at a transnational level. So because of that focus on antitrust and issues related to this notion of, well, what is a competitive market? My dissertation committee and, and advisors were an interesting mix of scholars in international law, international politics, and economics. And that broad interest in the institutional foundations of capitalism, it's a lot of words or syllables, so I tend not to say that a lot, but those institutional foundations of capitalism, what some people would call economic sociology, another term I don't use frequently because it's not particularly well known, but understanding what markets are and where they come from, that continues to be a passion until today and something that I'm quietly also writing about behind the scenes now for a project that I hope I have coming up in the coming years. It's really interesting. Well, I suppose there's no surprise your instinct for reach, building reach on social media and for getting recognition for your company, I suppose, has its roots in some political acumen, but equally having an entrepreneurial venture of your own sits uh, interestingly with your study of antitrust. So I always think these things are all linked together. I'd like to move now to your interest in behavioral finance and the private wealth advisor segment in particular. Where did that start? Yeah, I think that started, well, there's two steps. One is the interest in behavioral science and then the connection to the wealth management industry. So I would say around 2010, 2011, I had what was probably the first of a couple midlife crises, just thinking about what the hell I was doing with my life and figuring out my career and three kids and they're growing up quickly and just normal midlife stuff. And in that context, I picked up a book called The Art of Choosing by Sheena Ayengar, which is a book in the field of social psychology, not behavioral finance per se. And that book really turned on a big light bulb for me in thinking about the way we as human beings are wired to make choices and, and the agency that we have to build better lives for not only ourselves, but our loved ones and our community. So the art of choosing, not Kahneman and Tversky or Thaler or any of the classic scholars in, in behavioral finance, that was sort of the gateway drug. So much so that not only did I continue to read voraciously in that field, it just motivated me to start writing and was you had alluded to, I was head of research for a big fund of hedge funds and spent a number of years evaluating very complex investments, long short equity, global macro, convertible bond arbitrage. I mean, back in the day, that was my bread and butter, analyzing, investing in, building portfolios of, of those sorts of strategies. And in making sense of that career of having what is a real passion for simplifying the endless complexity of our lives, both professionally and personally, I just began to write and ended up publishing a, a book with some success called The Investor's Paradox. The subtitle, The Power of Simplicity in a World of Overwhelming Choice. 
So I wrote that book and it landed me kind of a random out of left field job at a, an investment company at an asset manager where I was given a blank sheet of paper to build a investor education and behavioral coaching function. And that firm's clientele were financial advisors. I mean, at the end of the day, the end client is just normal people like you and me and friends and, and family. But this was a, a firm that was and is selling to the wirehouses and independent broker dealers and independent RIAs and the space that you and I both operate in now. And that was a crash course in the world of financial advice, which I really didn't know a lot about until you know, around 2014 or so. And I loved it. I really from the jump, the ability to get on the road and meet financial advisors, listen to their stories, listen to their client stories, and then recognize how powerful the insights from behavioral science broadly were for that community. That got me really excited and led to more books and more good things. Let's move now to your vision behind Shaping Wealth. But before that, I suppose I'd like to ask, what do you think we're currently getting wrong about how we think about integrating behavioral science, behavioral practices into the practice of becoming a wealth advisor? Yeah, it's a good question that I have a pretty strong view on, which is that when you step back and ask, well, what is the impact that behavioral finance has had on the financial advice or wealth management industry? I think the answer is that it's been relatively limited, that we live in a kind of a golden era of behavioral science whether it's in psychology or neuroscience or consumer research or any other number of fields. And if you think back to Kahneman and Tversky and the origins of behavioral finance, it should have had a very large impact on the way financial advisors engage their clients, but ultimately it hasn't. I mean, when I think back across literally hundreds of speeches I've given over the last decade on this topic and, and really admitting that I think I was part of the problem for a long time, what the industry has gotten terribly wrong is its focus primarily on biases and heuristics. It's hard to say the word bias without having a negative connotation to it. And what's happened for one reason or another, the advice or wealth management industry, I keep using those interchangeably, but the advice business has bought into a version of behavioral finance that is diagnostic in nature, meaning that we as advisors and, and coaches and guides are in a position to talk to a client and observe that they are flawed in some way, that because of the way the brain is wired, that we have all, all of these imperfections and biases. And to this day, it's talked about that there are certificate and degree granting programs. The, the way that a lot of them work is, well, here's a list of 100 biases, 200 biases, confirmation, anchoring, recency. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And the MO has been to, okay, well, I'm going to help my client be more rational. I'm going to help my client transcend their biases. And the entire paradigm is broken in multiple ways. I mean, we could get into it, but as a headline for now, we've pathologized normal, understandable human behavior in ways where we actually undercut our own ability to have better conversations about clients as who they really are. And oh, by the way, we're no different than them as advisors, as coaches, as wealth management executives or employees of a wealth management firm. We're wired the exact same way. So the idea that we are the smart, rational ones and our clients are inexperienced amateurs who are just beset with all these biases, it's just wrong, wrong, wrong in multiple ways. And 
a big part of what Shaping Wealth, my company, is built to do is to push the industry in a different direction. And let's unpack that a little bit. So obviously, Dr. Heal thyself, I suppose, it seems to be a theme coming out and that the financial advisors themselves who are in contact with clients, you said, bring to bear the same biases or they not use that word, but the same behaviors. So there needs to be a deeper understanding of the advisor's own relationship with money or perhaps it's psychology around that. Is is that what you propose? Well, it's a thing that we work on. It's not the thing. A few years ago, I published a book called The Geometry of Wealth. And this was on the back of several years at that investment company where I was talking to literally thousands of financial advisors, talking to them about their practice. And there's a lot to say about that book. But the one big thing is that I coined a term called funded contentment. So I made a big distinction that in life, we have a path toward being rich and a path toward being wealthy. And the path toward being rich is a quest or the path toward more. And the search for more is ultimately unsatisfying because when we get what we want, we end up wanting the next thing. So to quote Don Draper from Mad Men, happiness is that feeling right before you want more happiness. And so I tried to chart a different course in talking about true wealth or funded contentment as the ability to underwrite a life that that is meaningful to you, however you choose to define that. And so there's a lot of other dots to connect, but fast forward to shaping wealth, the idea in how we work with advisors, because we are an advisor engagement platform, the way in which we work with advisors is to say that we help train you as a player coach in the search for funded contentment, that a lot of What the industry is teed up as right now is that the advisor, for as important as she is, and that role is the most important, they are often treated as sort of a hollow pass-through entity between some sort of corporate initiative on the one side and client KPIs on the other. And for as successful and well-compensated as advisors are and as enjoyable as their careers are, there's actually an underinvestment in their skills and training and perspective. And so our view is at the end of the day, we want to drive funded contentment for as many people as possible. That's the mission of shaping wealth, funded contentment for everyone. But as an advisor engagement platform, we think that the virtuous cycle or circle starts with the advisor herself and saying, well, who are you in this process? What is your relationship to money? And then there's a lot to unpack there in terms of emotional intelligence and other things But basically, yes, let's engage the advisor, him or her, in their own journey toward funded contentment, and let's connect that then to how they interact with clients. We are now going to take a short break to speak with the sponsor of this series about what it is that makes them unique. I sat down with Tom Raber of Alvine Capital. So Alvine Capital has a unique business model that you call reverse inquiry. Can you tell us what reverse inquiry means? When we were marketing or softly marketing funds, we realized that some institutional investors felt that they were being pushed and every call was the same as the one they just had. And we felt that we had to have another approach to institutional investors. And so we tried to really go behind the scenes and ask them, what exactly are you looking for? If you had a dream scenario and you had an opening in your fund, what would you like to have and how would that fund look? And when we got investors to 
open up and explain to us what they wanted. We then took down all the information we needed and we went out into the market. It's a pull sale rather than a push sale. You're actually helping the investor finding something that's better than than they thought that they were looking for in the first place. In terms of your client base, so you work with a lot of Scandinavian and Northern European institutions. Is there anything on their mind today? We opened an office in Stockholm last year. We have Nordic roots. We have, obviously, Nordic-speaking people in London as well. We've covered the region for many years. Yes, we know it very well. What are they looking for? What's happening up in that part of the world is that they're a leader in anything that's ESG and impact. Some very large institutions have decided not to do anything at all unless it's completely impact, completely green. Everyone is looking for good, well-performing private equity and private credit funds. And we're fortunate that we're working with both uh, in both categories. At the moment, we have a very good selection there. And now, back to the show. And let's talk about then the program that you have in place, this OCBO program. Can you talk about it, Outsource Chief Behavioral Officer, the concept, and what would advisors learn when they go through that? Yeah. So Shaping Wealth is a learning platform powered by behavioral science that trains advisors in the psychology of financial planning. And we do that in a variety of ways. Some of it is through courses. So for example, our flagship program is called Building the Behavioral Advisor. And that is our main thing in what I just referred to earlier, which is training advisors as player coaches in this search for funded contentment. And like a course, it has a start date and an end date. And we have a variety of of programs and workshops and things like that. Some of them are an hour long. Some of them are three months long. The OCBO, which let me tell your, your listeners what that means, that's the Outsourced Chief Behavioral Officer platform. That is not a course. There's no start date or end date. What I've been asked for, what my colleagues Joy and Neil and I have been asked for for years is basically bite-sized, easy to consume, easy to share in behavioral insights, content coaching, and other experiences that they can use in their practice, not only for their own professional development, but to elevate the client experience. This idea of a chief behavioral officer is something in our industry. There aren't that many firms that have a chief behavioral officer. Some of the huge wirehouses do, some of the very big RIA platforms do. And the idea behind a a chief behavioral officer is that it's somebody who's generally charged with overseeing whether the firm is helping people make better decisions, form sturdier habits, achieve higher levels of well-being. The fact is even that most firms are not not familiar with a CBO, they're not going to hire one. But at the same time, all of them do want better decisions, stronger habits, higher well-being. And so we've built this subscription platform that you can log into and you'll find hundreds of small, takes a few minutes or you could sit in a workshop that lasts for an hour, but very easy to engage dashboard with tons of behavioral insights. So we've done a lot of the work behind the scenes so that you can show up and learn and share. So that's the outsourced chief behavioral officer model. And we talk a lot in investment these days about impact. I'd love to hear what impact some of this early work you've done with your clients has had. Like, have there been aha moments for advisors, maybe something that they had overlooked, underappreciated? What do they tend to change about how they work with clients? It's been one of the 
real gratifying elements of the Shaping Wealth journey over the last couple years is that we've engaged. We now have clients, whether they're one-off advisors or whole advisory platforms all over the world. So North America, Europe, Australia, Asia. And it's been a treat to just watch how different advisors from different cultures engage the material that we're sharing, the courses that we're offering. I mean, I think to a specific individual, I mentioned this building the behavioral advisor program, it's cohort based. Cohorts tend to run between 15 and 25 people. We had a big cohort. We've now gone through eight cohorts. Cohorts nine and 10 are launching in the fall. I distinctly remember this one gentleman who, in offering his reflections after the course was over, he said to me, he actually did a video recording testimonial. He said, I didn't realize until I took your program that I had taken the blue pill, that there is this whole kind of technicolor world of human behavior and how it intersects with money and the decisions we make and the general quest for a life well lived and figuring out how money fits into that. His observation was he's just been in the day-to-day weeds of straightforward financial planning for, I mean, I think in his case, 20 or 22 years. I forget exactly what it was. But we were able to turn on a light in a dark room that he'd never entered before to really think about the human psychology of money. And from an impact point of view, to use your term, it's really about driving better engagements, having better conversations with clients about the things that matter, but also for your own purposes, whether it be for yourself or building out your team, really coming to terms with who you are as an advisor and what impact you want to make on your firm and your community and your clientele. So we've been very blessed to get frequent feedback from alumni of some of our programs that this is what we're doing has amounted to the most transformational learning experience of their careers. And I try to say that humbly. It's just, it's cool that it's happened and we're very encouraged to to just keep going. And in the field of investor behavior and psychology, how much of it is our deeply entrenched, perhaps behaviors that could be traced through generations? And how much have you seen to be new behaviors, new attitudes to money? And I'm thinking of some of the new trends we see around digital assets, shorter timeframes in terms of news flow, you know, news being available 24-7. We saw that with the banking crisis, the ability to move money very quickly. Do you have any kind of comments on trends you're seeing in terms of how people are viewing money today? I do, but I take the opposite view from what you just put out, which is that human is human and we don't change much we're wired the way that we are. The brains between our ears have been around for about 130,000 years or so. Money was just invented a few thousand years ago. So it's sort of old brains, this new thing called money. And we've been grappling with it ever since it's been created because it lands on ground zero of of defining who we are as people and, and where we fit into our tribes. So money is an emotional lightning rod for all of the big things, greed, fear, joy, hope, anger, envy, regret, trust, status. These are topics that course through all of human history. So the fact that we now have digital assets and that markets are open 24-7, there's something to be said, I guess, about the way our brains interact with this fast-moving information, with the ability to transact. So let's give credence to the fact that these new things challenge us 
in ways that weren't really available to us a generation ago, let alone centuries or millennia ago. But I like to keep the focus on what we just call the human experience of money. And that's been the same thing for many, many centuries. And in that context, we can take new inventions in the global financial supermarket. We can take new innovations like digital assets or things like that. But I think those, in terms of their impact on human behavior, I I think it's not very difficult to understand where they fit into who we are. It's really the same issues, just maybe with a different skin. I love that. Well, definitely in an earlier podcast we did, you talked about, well, what's the question behind the question? If a question can be very kind of granular about maybe a particular kind of asset, zooming back a little bit and thinking about, well, is this a, a risk tolerance issue? You talk about, am I going to be okay? Am I going to be happier that the thrive versus survive? Like, where is it coming mm-hmm. from? You have another current thought strand going on Twitter around the who instead of the why, starting with the who. Can you tell us a little bit about that and maybe how it differs from what is done currently? Yeah. So, well, let me set the ground for that a little bit so people know what we're talking about. In financial planning, we work in an industry that's sometimes called goals-based wealth management. And that's fine. I mean, a client shows up and we get to know them and we try to plan for the goals that they have. And the main one is retirement. Hey, I want to retire at age 62, my partner and I with X number of dollars so that we can have an X percent withdrawal rate that's going to support the lifestyle that we want. I mean, there's lots and lots of goals, but retire, I think it's fair to say that retirement is the biggest one in our industry. And that's a good thing in the sense that it moves us on from trying to beat benchmarks. Like if the question is, am I going to beat the market? something's gone very wrong in that conversation. That's not really relevant to an advisor, let alone the client. So the industry over the last 15, 20 years, the focus on goals has been, I think, virtuous up until a point where we recognize that the idea of a goal is much more complicated than we give time to readily admit. And so I've written about this a lot. A number of people have written a lot about the complexity of using goals and some of the shortcomings in terms of how those get defined, what your expectations are for how you're going to feel when you achieve those goals, and so on and so forth. We've done multi-hour workshops on the psychology of goals. The, The question of why is so important in that context, because it's just not that we listen to a client say, hey, I want to retire at 62 with X number of million dollars. And we say, that's great. Okay, let me just build you a cash flow model for that. That's better than nothing. But there's a whole conversation, not one that takes place in one one hour meeting, but an ongoing conversation about, well, why do you want to retire at that age with that amount to do those things so that you can better understand whether or not your plan is actually calibrated to not only what you want to do, but who you want to be. And so Simon Sinek's famous book and TED Talk Start With Why is very relevant here. When we throw purpose into the mix and meaning, keep in mind this whole idea of funded contentment that I mentioned earlier, it aims to ask the question or to frame an answer to the question of where money fits into a meaningful life. And so we want to ask, well, not just what is the goal, but why is it that you want to achieve it? All right. So a lot of table setting there to get to your question about the who. And the Simon Sinek and others would start with why. I've written a little bit lately, well, we also want to, or maybe even prior to that, want to start with who. Because 
this word identity, it's politically loaded. And so I'm going to avoid that at all costs. What we can just anchor on is the fact that identity is this core concept in psychology and just addresses who we are, our values and beliefs and what's important to us. So before we get to purpose and the why, let alone get to the goals, we might begin to ask questions as to who we are and recognize that each of us has many different identities. So it's in a financial planning context, we can identify ourselves as an investor who wants more. They want to turn a million dollars into $2 million to make up some random numbers. But think about each of our identities. We are partners. We are parents. We are children. We are workers and co-workers. We are sports fans. We are neighbors. We are part of a family. There's lots of fascinating exercises that psychologists have set up to give us some insight into the dozens of identities that we carry around with us every day. And so maybe it sounds complicated. Hopefully it's not in just thinking about, well, not just what I want and not just what I want to do, but who is it that I want to be and realizing that there are multiple versions of you now and in the future. And a really, really good financial plan is going to tap into those multiple identities. But that requires the advisor to have some good questions prepared and some thinking on this topic so that you can create that open space to have that dialogue. My sense is that clients, investors, they want to have that conversation. Just not a lot of advisors are that capable of having it. And all of this sounds very fulfilling, rewarding, but it will take time. And I want to tie this to another strand of thought you've been throwing out there for discussion around the use of AI and the integration of AI into practice in particular. How do you think in the next five years we will be integrating artificial intelligence, ChatGPT, BAR, the like into this practice? Yeah, I think the integration is inevitable, but I'd be the first to say that I don't know. I mean, at this point, if someone says they know how AI is going to change the practice of financial advice, I, I would treat that person with skepticism. I think we can begin to try to ask the right questions. I think we can extrapolate from current trends and be both excited and alarmed, but we don't know. I mean, even ChatGPT has been around for less than a year. We went from 3 to 3.5 to version 4. I've experimented with it a lot. I assume you have too. It's pretty amazing. I mean, it is very interesting and it feels human-like. It feels like when you work through prompts and re-prompts, you're kind of having a conversation with another human being. So in that sense, it's kind of easy to imagine that these AI bots, ChatGPT or whatever, with Bing or Bard or whoever, those can be integrated as some sort of content engine, a conversation engine in the financial planning space. Does that make us irrelevant as advisors? Maybe, maybe. That's the nature of technology and innovation over the centuries. We basically have to move up the value chain because technology and competition has disrupted what we were doing to the point where there's no profit margin left, that it's become fully commoditized. So. I think that the name of the game now is to experiment with these technologies. My gut instinct, which could change next week, but my gut instinct is that this is going to be massively impactful and game-changing for the wealth management industry, along with every other service and experience-based industry. But beyond that, I'm a little hesitant to say, well, this is what's going to happen. 
my gut is it's going to be big, like really big. It's interesting. I see it as being a pretty important tool in terms of content generation and certainly lightening that load, perhaps in terms of mapping clients through data, much more use of data. But as far as the actual human touch that you mentioned, the person who can really get to your who and your why, I'm not sure that that will be ever replaced. But I suppose that's my instinct. But it's, I think, definitely the integration of the two will be the way we we see things developing. Yeah. And I think that's usually the case. I mean, when we think about just go back not that far in time, there's the whole debate over robo-advisors and whether they were going to replace advisors. And the answer is absolutely not, like not even close. And in fact, robo-advisors were never, aren't now advisors. They're just routinized investment and rebalancing engines that don't have a lot to do with advice per se. I think it's easier now to think about AI as an advice engine versus the older take on robo advice as being an investment engine. And it's always about the humans and the technologies interacting. Do people want a human solution or technology solution? They usually want a combination. They want something that is bionic. My default thought for now is that humans will want advice from other humans that is enabled efficiently through good technology. That's kind of a generic thing to say, but I think that's generally true of where this is going to be. When you think about how lousy customer service is across many industries, I'm not talking about financial advice here, but you think about all of the engagement that we have with lots of customer-facing firms, and then you see how powerful these ChatGPT engines are in answering questions and engaging you in conversation. I don't see how this doesn't just blow up whole industries and companies in the relatively near future. And one of the areas that you're known for in the forum that that we often discuss in is Twitter. You've built quite a prodigious Twitter following there and engage a lot. How have you find that this, I suppose, enables your business to, to grow in terms of perhaps generating more conversations? So it's a little bit embarrassing. And my kids don't think Twitter is cool, so I don't get any points from them. But it's true that over the last five, six years, seven years, nothing has been more important to my career than Twitter in the sense that I have met so many good, smart people. I've learned so many things. And there's a fair share of BS on the site. I think things have gotten materially worse under the current owner in terms of the technology and just the way the whole thing looks and feels and works. That said, it's still a remarkable place. I just think of it as the neighborhood where I hang out with ultimately hundreds of friends and counterparts who are thinking about similar things. I mean, the ideas that people post, the blogs or articles that people link to that I wouldn't have found ever or anytime soon, it's unbelievable. And from a business building point of view, it's just an opportunity for us to put our story out there between Twitter and and LinkedIn. We're pretty assertive in telling people what's going on. I mean, we talked about the Outsource Chief Behavioral Officer platform. We always have stuff going on there every week. We've got new programs coming around. And just as a straightforward advertising engine or platform, it's useful and productive. But for me, Twitter, the real benefit over the years has been less about narrowly defined revenue generation through an ad model. That's really not the way I think of it. It's more about getting to know people, being part of a community of like-minded folks who care about the same things. 
definitely a great forum for idea exchange, the old-fashioned salon concept when it's working, when it works well. Just got one more question about our industry, and then I'll move to a couple of closing questions. Diversity. It's often suggested that the wealth management advisor industry is not sufficiently diverse in terms of the group it caters to. And is it diverse itself? Now, I know on the thin Twitter that you mentioned, there is a lot of diversity, that that is not uh, an issue there. But what are your impressions of the industry from both of those sides, the advisor side and the client side in terms of, are we reaching as far as we can? Are we reaching as far as we can? So the answer is no. Let's just talk about on the advisor side of things. The good thing is that things tend to change. Real social change tends to happen at a generational pace. It doesn't happen as quickly as some people would like month over month, year over year. But from where I'm sitting, you can definitely see and hear a whole variety of new faces, different voices of wealth coming from throughout the industry. So I'm actually pretty optimistic about the nature of the advice business and who's being attracted to it. There's a bigger question in terms of where is the talent coming from to fill the industry? The biggest problem that we're hearing at Shaping Wealth from advisors, advice firms from all over the world is that there's a real mismatch between the supply and demand of talent that wealth management firms tend to be doing pretty well and they can't find enough young people to join their firm. That, at least in a US context, might be changing a little bit. I'm seeing more and more wealth management programs pop up at prominent universities. So I think you'll see more people enter the workforce and hopefully, if the message is less about, hey, picking great stocks and beating the market, the old school, very old school notion of advice, and it being more about financial well-being, funded contentment, helping people lead good lives and helping them figure out the money piece to it, I think that there's going to be a much broader, more diverse audience that is open to working in that type of role. So I'm, in terms of what I'm seeing, in terms of who's getting hired, as well as on the educational front. I'm relatively optimistic. Let's moving to some reflections. You've spoken a lot about the human part of this industry and the individual, the who. One of the areas I like to ask about are looking back at people's own careers, whether they've had any setbacks or challenges that they've learned lessons from. When you look back at your career to date, were there any that you can share? <laughs> okay, good. We can block out a, an hour for all of the mistakes and screw-ups that I've made over the years. Yeah. I mean, there's been tons of setbacks. I talked about this nonlinear career, politics and academia, investments, writing, investor education, now entrepreneurship, building a business. Each of those steps forward has been a net positive, but also at each of those junctures, there's been setbacks and challenges, like coming to terms with the fact that you feel like you've run your course with certain parts of not only your career, but your life, and you feel unfulfilled, you feel like maybe you're not doing work that's as meaningful to you as it once was. And at the same time, you've built up a network and you're being well compensated for doing certain things. For whatever reason, I've always had confidence and, and maybe it's being a bit crazy also, but I've always had the confidence to move on to the next thing. I mean, I sometimes joke that I've quit everything that I've ever started. And that's been a good thing. But there's definitely been some roadblocks and some jobs that haven't worked out that sense that, God, what am I going to do next? But I guess I've been pretty good about maintaining my self-confidence and just demonstrating resilience and putting my authentic self out there and recognizing that not everybody's going to like it or receive it well, but certain people will. And landing in that next spot, 
I will say just because I spent a long time as an investor, I made lots of mistakes in terms of so many different micro elements of, of bad decision making. That was what brought me in no small part into the world of behavioral finance, behavioral science. And my first book, The Investor's Paradox, starts off with one of the worst manager interviews I've ever done, one where I just got steamrolled by the portfolio manager who didn't answer my questions and ramrodded me through that bad experience. But that was one of many situations where I underperformed my own standards. And I guess the best that I could do was just try to learn from those. And in part, what I did, not most people will do, but I wrote a book about it and just keep pushing forward. Well, certainly great advice there. And yes, investment is the ultimate Petri dish for real-time examination of mistakes and decision processes. Well, Brian, this has been such a pleasure to gather from you such insights, not only on the behavioral finance side, but of your background and journey to date. You are, I think, a one-man think tank. And now with Shaping Wealth, you are able to bring together a team that is really firing on so many different cylinders here to help us think differently about how we provide advice and how we treat money ourselves. So thank you so much for coming here and sharing your insights with us. Thank you. It was great. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. And all views are personal and should not be attributed to the organizations and affiliations of the host or any guest.